0: It's the Opperman Report. Join digital forensic investigator and PI Ed Opperman for an in depth discussion of conspiracy theories, strategy of New World Order resistance, high profile court cases in the news, and interviews with expert guests and authors on these topics and more. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman.
1: Okay, welcome to the Opperman Report. I am your host, private investigator, Ed Opperman, and this show is brought to you by emailrevealer.com. You can go to emailrevealer.com and you can get an autographed copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. Uh, also, too, uh, since we're, we're talking to you right here, right before Father's Day, I know that right before Father's Day, a lot of people like to locate whether you're a father or you're a son or a daughter, you, you want to locate your estranged family members around the holidays. It's very, very common. So you don't want to wait till the last minute. If you want to do a locate on a family member or your father, your son, your daughter, uh, you can go to emailrevealer.com and use the people search feature. It's as cheap as 20 bucks. Uh, but give us some time because sometimes uh, the first uh, you crap out on the, uh, the database searches, you need to do a little bit more work, start making some phone calls with neighbors and stuff like that, locating employment. So it could be a little bit of work. So you, want, you don't want to wait till the last seconds. is what I'm trying to say to you. Uh, so we have all different kinds of people searches there. And if it gets more complicated, we can do a skip trace for you. And so basically people don't want to be found. And also, too, uh, adoption investigations, okay? Uh, I, I tell you, I used to get calls about this all the time. And we have great new sources for adoption investigations. If you're estranged from a, a biological uh, relative, a father or, or, or a son or a daughter, a uh, mother, Through adoption process, we can find adopted parents. We can find adopted children. Okay, anybody separated through the adoption process Uh, in all fifty states. So, uh, doing a great job on that. Okay, we got a fascinating guest today. This is some really good stuff. I stumbled on this article. It's on the Swamp Dot Media, and our guest's name is Johnny Vedmore. And you can find him on uh, Twitter at uh, uh, Johnny Vedmore. He's written his things. You know, it, you know, it's almost like fiction. It's about Theresa May's father. And uh, very bizarre. So I'm going to let him tell you about it. Uh, Mr. Vedmore, are you there? Hello there. How are you, Ed? I'm very good. I forgot to mention, too, he's a musician as well as a writer.
2: Uh, I am indeed. I am indeed.
1: Tell us about yourself. Who is Johnny Vedmore?
2: Oh, Johnny Vedmore is just uh, interested in truth, justice, love, peace, and probably a little bit of weed, too. <laughs>
1: Hey, so was I years ago, man. I gave it up. How old are you?
2: Uh, I'm 37 at the moment, but I'm, I feel young. I feel oh, young. Okay. I feel young and beautiful.
1: I'm 55. I feel old. <laughs> and and you're, I'll be there with you. will yeah, be there well, with you. Hope, you know, hopefully, you know, you want to, you want to hope you make it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a, We all want to make it to like 90, 100. Uh, so you're a musician and you're a writer. How'd you get started with this kind of a, uh, writing about these kind of topics?
2: well i i suppose it's uk politics did it to me at first um uh, there's a lot going on in the uk over the past 10 years and over the past 10 years you talk about before that you had um iraq afghanistan right. um you 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 have before that you had the the uh, tony blair taking over power from what what had been a conservative government and our industries being basically torn apart in the 80s and the 70s so i mean we've had a we've had a bumpy ride over the past 30 40 50 years and then before that you're going post war and the war um so so this country's uh, rife for for, for storytelling is a lot of there's a lot of uh, things to investigate there's a lot of stuff trapped in a very small space in the united kingdom mm. um and so so i i i suppose the thing that really got me was seeing people who were not telling truths not being honest
1: uh, absolutely. Now, the article that caught my attention was Theresa May's father, the serial killer, the traveler's daughter and the cover ups. Now, the, the show is heard here. I'm on a couple of stations in the UK, um, but mostly the United States, but also Africa, different places like that. So let, let's start mm-hmm. off with who is Theresa May?
2: Theresa May is currently the Prime Minister of the UK. She's been the Prime Minister. We just recently had an election where she was re-elected, but with a weaker government strength. She had, she's got a minority conservative government. Um, she, she's, she used to be the Home Secretary um in the uk for the past five years before the brexit vote when david cameron stood down and she became the leader an elected leader uh, uh through tory party ranks the tory party voted her in she'd become the prime minister um, a year later, she called an election or just under a year later, she called an election. Um, before that, she had, she had been in the home office, which basically deals with, um, a lot of the legal issues, um, a lot with deportations, um, especially with anti-terror legislation, et cetera. Um, so she, she's, she's also, it also investigates. It's the, the, the department that when you want inquiries open, it's the department that opens the inquiries and investigates the claims
1: that's interesting is that similar to our uh, department of justice
2: yeah I, I i very very much so but i'm i I'm, i mean the, the patterns of government are just slightly different um it, it, the british tend to be um very open with with foreign governments, et cetera. So, and we tend to have a lot of people coming in. So it means that sometimes there's people who they don't want in the country, and Theresa May's previous job was basically to get those people out of the country and to sort out any of the issues of law and order in the country, like tell the police that she's going to cut 20,000 policemen from the streets of Great Britain and things like that.
1: Fascinating. You know, it's, it's sort of like a combination of a immigration department or ICE or Homeland Security as well as <laughs> yeah. Yeah. fascinating, and the way you guys do it over there. Now, so what? What was so her little history? Where was she before this Home Secretary thing? what what was her
2: upbringing? Where did she come from? Well, she came from. She 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 was a quiet lady. (laughs) She was a quiet lady. I mean, she was educated like most of. She was brought up officially um, in a vicarage. This is the Conservative Party line. Is she was brought up as a vicar's daughter. She had a very quiet childhood. Um, she went to university, I believe in Oxford or Cambridge, one of the two elite universities in the country. She, um, joined the Conservative Party very early on, um, uh, while Margaret Thatcher was in power. Um, of course, she idolized Thatcher, um, and she, she continued in the Conservative Party until eventually David Cameron gave her a post, um, as Home Secretary.
1: And did, now, it's a vicar's daughter, though, but does she come from a wealthy family to, for this
2: kind of school? No, 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 no. Um, he, he, her father was uh, a man named Hubert Brazier, who was I, I wouldn't say he was a wealthy man. He was just normal, everyday vicar, along with uh, his wife, who was also seemed like um, a very normal lady. It, it's very rare for someone um, who was born in the situation that Theresa May was born to end up in the position that she's in now as prime minister. So it's a, it's a pretty impressive story. Okay, but she, she did go to Oxford or Cambridge.
1: Do, do they have like, yeah. a, um, what do they call it? Like, a, um, uh, scholarships or, or grants over there for that kind of thing to get into that kind of a place?
2: Yeah, they do. But also at the time when she was actually going into university, we had a system that was a lot fairer than the system nowadays mm-hmm. and allow people to have grants, um, and to go on, on certain scholarships, um, also to basically have for free education.
1: Yeah so they they're cracking down on that over there too as well.
2: <laughs> yeah, they they've been doing that for years. I mean, I mean it's it's now uh, the average student in the UK leaves with what would be the equivalent of about $60,000 worth of debt.
1: Yeah, I got a 17-year-old got a 17-year-old daughter, was, you know, and we're going yeah. through all that right now, man. But then hopefully she'll get some good scholarships because she's a really sharp kid. Now, yeah. So but, uh, it's unknown how she got into Cambridge and stuff like that. So, but, the, but the mystery part is, is her father, right?
2: Yeah. Cause, well, I mean, the reason why she gets into good schools, the reason okay. why she goes a good way is because by the time she's at the age of her teenage years, um, she's in a very, she's, she's on, uh, fallen, her family has fallen on their feet quite heavily. I'll go back to the start okay. with uh, her father because when her father was in university, he was in the University of Leeds, um in the uk um and it was 1939 um and he was a very young man he was like in his early 20s and the war had just begun um of course conscription meant that people would be called up from the ages between the ages first of all of 19 and 22 i think it was or 23 so he's well within those ages and the next year he left um, university and um, decided instead of going to the war, he'd become a priest. Um, so he went to a place in Yorkshire called M- the Murfield uh, Seminary, which um, was the community of the resurrection. It was a group of Catholic order that had been there for the past 50, 60 years, had built a community in Murfield. Um, uh, later on, this order would include the Verona brothers who basically systematically abused um young boys. But that was about 15 to 20 years after Brazier was there. Um, but that is something that during the story, I discovered lots, uh, times where, it, and it might just be because of the phenomenon of church abuse, um, which is well documented. Um, but it, it just seems to be that every time you go to a place, there's also been a lot of, uh, incidents where people have been convicted of crimes against, um, children within the diocese that this gentleman has been in um i'm not saying him himself i'm saying that people who he has been around um people within the same in same communities so so this is something you see all the way through but while he was in murfield this was during the wartime, and um the kids were being sent from the big cities that were being bombed sheffield and etc would be the industrial cities of the north of england were being bombed by the nazis so and a loop-waffer. and so um the uh, children got evacuated into places like this so he was he was there in, in uh, through the war helping uh in in uh, murfield but then he got uh, given his first placement in a church in catford in london um, and this was during terrible times, cause, uh, I, as I mentioned in the actual story, there's, uh, the road he was, his church was on just a little bit down from where a school was hit by, um, a massive incendiary explosive, um, that killed basically all of the kids in there. Um, so they had disaster after disaster there. The bombing map of, uh, London during the Blitz during those years that he was in London would have just meant that he was constantly in shelters, constantly, uh, doing funerals. Um, I, I saw evidence of this through, through church records, et cetera, um, on different sites. Um, he, he, uh, stayed around in Catford till just after the war and then he moved into, um, a quiet little place called Rygate. Just kind of disappeared into, into obscurity in this little church that, that, that is, is barely much. I think it was a kind of like a break from during all of the war in London. Maybe they thought he needed a bit of time off somewhere. But at this point, he was um, getting older and he was still unmarried. Um, and he moved to Eastbourne and became in 1953 and became the hospital chaplain. And this is where the story really gets juicy.
1: Okay, 53 becomes a hospital chaplain. Okay, and now, uh, then what happens then?
2: Well, Hubert Brazier starts working in Eastbourne Hospital um, at around the same time that it's already known the famous serial killer John Bodkin Adams um, was a doctor at the hospital. Now, at that time, Doctor John Bodkin Adams was like the Harold Shipman of his days. He got away with all of his crimes, so Unlike Shipman, um, he killed a um, hundred and over a hundred sixty people, um, getting over a hundred thirty to leave him money in the will. Yeah, so he is. was your know, classic con man. He would find elderly people. He would make them all really happy. He'd say he'd make them feel relaxed, give them the drugs they needed, just if they left him something to his in his well. And when they agreed to doing that, as soon as they had put him in his well, he, he would give them a little injection and then they would be dead. Um and this, uh, was something that continued over and over. It is more than 160 cases, but 160 cases have been, have been put down as the suspicious acts that were probably murders. Now, at the time, he got away with it. Um, he got away with it partially because the NHS, uh, the National Health Service, um, what supplies universal healthcare in Great Britain had just been established and eight years on it had hit rocky ground. Um, and it was having trouble finding funding and they were really scared that if they prosecuted a doctor, um, of his standing, um, his stature, uh, in the courts and he got sentenced to death, that nobody would ever want to be a doctor in the NHS again. They, they thought it would really be a bad recruitment. So, uh, um, the government officials who had set up the NHS officially, um, started, uh, covering up, uh, the case. Uh, he got taken. Eventually, the nurse, there were so many nurses at the time. This would be at the same time Theresa May's father's working there as hospital chaplain, where he's having to literally deliver um, last rites, um, uh, the cremation, for, uh, part of, of uh, the actual, um, uh, I don't know, order of how people are cremated and etc. He would have been there all through that. He would have known. Dr John Bodkin Adams, on some level some way shape or form um, uh, John bodkin Adams himself was um, a supposedly a religious man uh, as well so so he was uh, John bodkin adams was was going around basically um, murdering people um, they took him to court he got found not guilty, acquitted um, of one case of murder, but then given um uh, eventually in I think about 1955 uh, to 1957, he was given um a, uh, he was basically pushed out the door and told uh, convicted for a writing fake prescriptions, um, falsifying crema- crema- crematorium documents, um, falsifying other do- ad- admin documents, and he was suspended for about three, four years, but then he came back to be a doctor again afterwards.
1: Okay, so just stop and think. Okay, if if this guy uh, John uh, Adams, Bodkin Adams, is killing these people, and you, you had a social life with them, then they wind up dead, and you're given the last rites for all these people, and you're you're there at the funerals, like you said, and, and the ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you notice after a well, while? Hey, you know, every time somebody's dead, <laughs> every, to... every,
2: the, the the rumor is, and and from lots of the evidence yeah. um, that was actually at the trial. Um, everybody knew all the nurses were talking about it. And the nurses had complained over and over again because they knew something was suspicious was what was obviously happening. It wasn't just older patients who were dying. It was also young patients. It was I can't remember her name, but it was um, a young film star. And that was one of the things that really made the police have to act and do something because it was so public. But she was quite a famous um film star. And he uh ended her life after she had given him her car.
1: Yeah. And in your article, it says he was convicted of making four of four counts of making false statements on cremation forms. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I wonder what the what was behind that. Uh, Did you get a chance to actually look at the uh, the court records uh, of uh, this, this trial?
2: I, I I didn't. It's quite. It, there's um. Uh, there's a few books. There's a book called um. The will. Uh, the way There's a will. Is a way. Oh, yeah. That's a, a good title. Um. And is I watched a few a few documentaries on Bodkin Adams. I did a lot of reading up about Bodkin Adams, but I didn't get to see any of the case uh, files. But I did. Um. Get afterwards after I wrote this story. Um. Someone got in touch with me and explained that the person who defended John Bodkin Bodkin Adams in court. Um. Is actually the father. Of a woman named Harriet Harman, who's one who used to be um, the well, she was like um, temporary leader of the Labour Party in the UK.
1: Well, that's interesting. And yeah, so
2: both sides, the, the the most senior women of both sides of of um, British politics, both had something to do with this case. Well, in a connection, not something to do with this case. A guess, small yeah, a connection. It's family connection.
1: It's this connection to make an issue. And there was something in here, too, that I missed. Something about a gay lover that was his protector as well?
2: <laughs> well... There was a, a gentleman named, a gentleman, um, there was a man named Lord Gwynne, uh, who, uh, he, he had been the mayor of Eastbourne for years and years, um, before, uh, he was apparently the gay lover, openly gay lover of John Bodkin Adams. Everybody knew what was going on. Um, it was well, it was, just common knowledge that John Bodkin Adams um, and Lord Gwynne were together quite a lot and they had um, a relationship which went past just being friends. They, uh, Lord Gwynn, the night before the actual acquittal um, uh, 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 of John Bodkin Adams, was seen with the actual judge in a restaurant having dinner. Literally, the night before in the restaurant, they were having dinner, and he was obviously um telling him what they had to be acquitted.
1: Right. Uh, That's fascinating. Everybody
2: is, is, is fully aware that, that it was, there was no way, um, the, the guy who was prosecuting was a guy named, um, Manningham Buller. And he was such, um, uh, he was a bulldog. He wanted truth. He wanted stuff like that. But he, he had a, a, a massive amount of evidence. He had a, a he had the opportunity to charge, um, him with multiple, multiple murders. Yeah, he only chose to charge him with one murder and then that purposely kind of fell apart. So it seems like that's how they did it. They just undermined the case.
1: And, and this was like a Catholic, uh, um,
2: hospital. I would I would assume so. I know that um Theresa May's father Hubert Brazier was um Anglican Catholic. Um at one point John Bodkin Adams is actually asked by a reporter, does he think that he's done anything wrong um in leaving in people leaving things to him in his will? Do you think that's wrong? And he said, "Oh no, I've already made my peace with God about that." So I do wonder did he actually have confession? Did he actually sit and have confession with a priest and if so, what priest would have been close by?
1: Mm, very interesting. Oh, oh, that's right. It would have been right. Who would have been right? Could have been um, uh, Brazier. Okay. Yep. I didn't put that together. Okay. How many years did Brazier work with Adams in, in this hospital?
2: probably about five or six, but during the most the most spectacular years, during the trial, during the acquittal, um, and then there was another trial that eventually saw him uh, boot, booted out. He would have been around all the nurses. He would have been around all of the people there who would have been telling him. Um, he was also at the time, though. I mean, I wonder if he... If, 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 at that time, people seemed to keep themselves to themselves in Britain. So I, I, I you can accept that... People would have turned a blind eye to a lot of things. Um, But maybe a priest, you would expect something differently. But at that time, he also got married, uh, Hubert Brazier. He uh, met his wife, Zadie, and uh, they got, uh, Zadie Barnes, her name was, and they got married. She was already um, suffering from MS, and I believe believe they would have met in the hospital.
1: That's interesting. Now, is it uh, common? Uh, around that time, especially for uh, a, a hospital chaplain who was in the seminary. Uh, he was an official priest. Was he ordained priest? He was. I,
2: I, as far as I know, he was from an order which is celibate. Right. But I, I think the Church of England. As soon as you you go into the wider Church of England, your branch of, you know, of the doctrine of your faith just starts to disappear and get overshadowed by uh, the fact that it's just not possible in the modern world, or in the world even they lived in at the time. Um, he, he it was I I. I, I the originally in Murfield, when they had set up the community of the resurrection, there had been suspicions about the the priests uh, all around. And this is in the late 1800s. There's a lot of talk about suspicions of the priests, but there's no talk of what the suspicions were. But throughout the entire of history, if you read up um, on British history, people weren't very uh, they were very suspicious of celibate priests, of single men. Um, uh, maybe the things that we know now and the uh, abuse has happened in the past was even more prevalent when people weren't talking about it. So m- maybe that still had something uh, to do with it, but I, I was unable to make an exact connection between why people found uh, the men of that era, um, uh, mm-hmm. suspicious, but they did. And I, I think it was just the time. Mm-hmm. Now, it is, was normal to have a family.
1: It's Zadie Teresa's uh, mother.
2: Yeah, they got, they got married at uh, Teresa's mother. Um, it, it's, she was given away by her father, um, Reginald, uh, James Barnes, and he's listed down as a traveler. And, In, in Britain now, we, uh, a a traveler is what we'd call someone who like, um, either a Romany gypsy or, um, travels around the country, like from Irish heritage, from uh, a certain section of Irish heritage. Um, I don't think he was that. I think he was just someone who traveled around, but it, it doesn't explain anything else about him. And he just appears and disappears.
1: So Zadie was given away by her father who describes himself on a marriage certificate as a traveler, Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. which could be translated to tourist today, but not, it's not the which travelers.
2: could are. be, yeah. could be, but the name Zadie comes from the Middle East. Oh, that's interesting. So, it, it, it wasn't usual call, um, uh, your child, uh, names from, from all around the world, uh, back then in England. It just wasn't. Everybody was called Anna or Mary or Catherine or Katie. Right. You know, you have all the normal names, but, but to be called Zadie, uh, with a Z and two E's just seems, phew, <laughs> seems special.
1: Yeah. Even me growing up uh, in the 60s and 70s, that would have been uh, unusual to have a kid named Zadie. Uh, we'll stuck mm-hmm. out. Now, um, what about her mother? Do we know anything about her mother, Zadie's mother?
2: I don't know too much about it, um, it because there's not too much about Hubert Brazier himself. I mean, what you've got to link is lots of tiny little bits of information together to work out where he was and um, uh, uh, where, where his actual positions were in the country um, uh, during the time. And his, his fingerprints were massive. Hers was, uh, Zadie's was even less. So, um, there was, it was, there's not much uh, apart from wedding document and the fact that she's Theresa May's, um, mother and she was born in Reading, uh, when she was 17. She was working in, uh, cleaning a house, I believe, like a housemate, um, in Reading. So uh, that's all I could find out really about her.
1: And 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 the the early life of uh, the traveler. What do we know about him, Reginald
2: uh... Reginald James Barnes? Well, I went on a little bit of a tour around uh, around a mulberry bush to find Reginald J. Barnes because um, on the other side of the family, on the paternal side of Theresa May's family, is um, uh, the great grandmother has also got the last name of Barnes. And I did go around in a bit of a circle trying to see if they were connected in any way, shape or form, but I, I, I don't think they were. <laughs> I, I just wanted to see, just wanted to check.
1: Now, what about is the, the mainstream media over there in the UK talk? Cause this is some bizarre stuff.
2: Is, I know. I know. They were, they, they uh, Theresa May will not talk about her father. She just will not. She has left it blank. She has refused to talk, but mind you, she, she lost a recent election because she refused to talk to the public. I'm talking about anything about anything at all she she would she she's a woman of ca- of of taglines of catchphrases of the words that, that they think will get them elected but she's not someone who actually speaks with people um and i think her history cuz okay, cuz after um after eastbourne uh, hospital um he's given uh, her father is given a massive promotion and she's only very young at this time so she's born in eastbourne during the time in 19 around 19 19- 55, I think, um, uh, around the time that, that her father's working with um, Dr. John B- uh, 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 Bodkin-Adams. Um, and then he, he gets almost an amazing, one of the best promotions you can imagine in the Church of England. He gets put up to a place, um, uh, Vicar of Enstone with Hayfrop. It had just been, uh, the two areas had just been combined. He was the first uh, vicar of this uh, place. And it's a uh, a little church that's right near all of Chipping Norton and the establishment, where the establishment lives in Britain, the most beautiful parts of central, the heart of England.
1: So then you would be around the politically uh, uh, powerful people.
2: Uh, most definitely. People who were living nearby at the time included um uh, Oswald Mosley, the famous fascist. Um, and and some of the, the the I mean nowadays around that area you'll find people like David Cameron and 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 uh, the the last leader and and many of his uh, of the political ilk many lords many many people around it it's a very establishment uh, friendly place they don't allow houses or flats and they haven't allowed houses or flats to be built on any of the land over the years so they don't have really um, a mixed uh, community as much as you would see in the cities and the towns over here in Britain.
1: Okay. That's fascinating. Now, now what about uh, back to Theresa May for a second though? You said that how she doesn't uh, give a lot of speeches. She doesn't talk to people, you know, sound bites, but is she like a, a pol- like a politically powerful person where people owe her a lot of favors, where she has control over funds front- like over here in, in the States, like, uh, the Clintons had control over HUD, HUD grants. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you want to get a grant, you go to the Clintons. Uh, did she have that kind of juice?
2: This is, uh, this is what always astounds me about Theresa May's progress through the UK political landscape is that she doesn't really have any type of, um, she made friends with the right people early on. And I think the reason why she's become Prime Minister today is they, after the Brexit vote, they needed a scapegoat to trigger Article 50 because whoever triggered Article 50 it was going to be the end of their political career. And I think at the moment we're watching the end of Theresa May's political career happening. She's never actually achieved anything. In all of her years as home office, she failed to bring down numbers of immigration, which she promised to bring them down to tens of thousands on three different general elections and never even made a dent. They only ever rose. They promised to get down the deficit, their party, and it only rose, um, nearly doubled in their time. Uh, I I can't even understand why she would be elected by the party, why the party would be proud of her, what she has done in the past. But I think she is just a scapegoat.
1: And here in the States, we hear that she's trying to form some coalition with this Northern Ireland, uh, almost like fascist kind of a neo-Nazi group. What's the deal with that? (laughs)
2: well well it's amazing a day before the um election uh you could see on the front of all of the right wing newspapers they had linked her opposition uh, the opposition party labor they'd linked Jeremy Corbyn with all these different ira terrorists saying how he was the most awful person and that he he hung around with hamas and they they basically they they 've blown him to trying to get talk peace with people over the years they 've blown that into some sort of uh, big story that doesn 't actually exist Two days later, she wins power but not by enough and she has to go and speak with real uh, actual terrorists and she had, she starts to work with those people who have uh, who are climate change deniers they deny abortion they deny equality they deny um lbgtq rights everything that you can Imagine um, that that isn't acceptable in our modern liberal world is what they they deny. So so I mean it's just it's an astounding um hypocrisy irony. I don't know it's all of it all mixed up at the moment in British politics.
1: Fascinating. Now, now uh, we're going to take a commercial break in a minute. But before we do, cl- clarify for me one more time because uh, the Reverend uh, Hubert Brazier, right now mm-hmm. he married but then he was promoted within the church. He got a better gig in the church. Is that common or normal for for a guy?
2: I'm not sure. And I'm not, my question was um, when uh, what happened in Eastbourne hospital happened, was he one of the people who um, they did not want to give testimony? Did they pay him off in some way? Did they say, don't say anything and then lifted him up into a really good position and talked with some of their guys? I don't know if that happened, but it does seem like he's gone from a really big jump. But in the same way, he did go through World War II at one of the heart of bombing, and he had just been in the hospital with a serial killer.
1: Right. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Because either they'll do that. They'll bump you with a big promotion, keep you quiet, Mm -hmm. keep you happy and happy. Yeah. Or they'll throw you in prison. You know (laughs) <laughs> it can go the other way too, you know. It can go hard bad. Hard to do with
2: a vicar. Very hard to do with a vicar.
1: Very true. Very true. I can tell you, man. You've been working on this. Great stuff, man. This is great, 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 great work. Okay, the website is uh, uh swamp dot Okay, this is a great article, man. This is a. Great, this is a lot of great research. How, how long were you working on this
2: story? Um, it was it was a, 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 <laughs> a few weeks. Um, but I I mean it's it's nothing compared to the story I'm working on now, which is just is taking over my life.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And this I could tell too. I could tell you, you really threw yourself into this, man. And you just, you really worked probably 20, 12, 24 hours a day, right? You're working on this I,
2: for a couple of weeks. I, I'm a bit of an obsessive. Yeah. So I've got, I've got kind of the, the time, the time to do. I'm a bit of a recluse as well, you know, hidden away, tapping away on my, 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 I, I, I like, I, I, this is something I love to do, do, is researching, is finding information out and then looking into the next level of the detail.
1: Uh, recluse, you're not doing any serial killing over there like Dr. Uh, Vodkins. right?
2: No, no, no. I'm all a nice, right. quiet neighbor.
1: I'm going to keep an eye on you, man. All right. <laughs> you make me nervous here. All right. We're going to take a commercial break. We're going to be back with Johnny Vedmore. Great guest, man. Thank you so much. Uh, Media. It's not .com, So it's, you got to look for TheSwamp.media, But if you just Google, uh, Johnny Vedmore and Theresa May, this excellent article is going to come up right away. Uh, also you can find them on Twitter. Follow him on Twitter at at Johnny Vedmore, V-E-D-M-O-R-E. And a uh, writer and a musician, and we'll be, you should have a podcast. Everything about doing a podcast?
2: Um, I'm, we're setting it up at the moment. I mean, me and a few friends are trying to do something more like a vidcast sort of thing. We'll see what goes on.
1: Yeah, you're very, you're very good on radio. Let me uh, take a break, and we'll be right back with more of Johnny Vedmore. The Opperman Report is brought to you by SubashTechnosis.com. Subash Technosis is a search engine optimization and website design company located in India. So you know you're going to save a lot of money and get top quality service to boot. They offer all kinds of services, uh, business process outsourcing, data entry, banking BPO services, recruitment process outsourcing, uh, software testing, offshore research networking, uh, customer care, press release content writing and distribution, and much, much more. They offer website development, e-commerce solutions, mobile responsive designs. Now, I've personally worked with Subash for over 10 years. Uh, this is the man that puts out my press releases. Uh, they've done work on my websites, so I can personally recommend SubashTechnosis.com. You can find the link to Technosis at OppermanReport.com and also AwakeRadio.us. Welcome to our new sponsor. Okay, welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator, Ed Opperman. Uh, this portion of the show is brought to you by PSCoco.com. Now, uh, you go to PSCoco.com, you want to get some, uh, uh, some silky smooth chocolate uh, by the Cocoa Exchange. Uh, Phoebe Sod is the, uh, the, the owner of the website. If you want to get into the cocoa business along with Phoebe Sod, you click on the Contact Us button, or you can click on the Shop Now button at PSCoco.com. And you look at their beautiful sampler packs and stuff like that that they have and uh, you can order it right now it'll be in your box by Monday morning that's at pscoco.com and become a chocolatier just like phoebe said we are today he, we are with uh Johnny Vedmore musician writer uh possible serial killer I'm working on <laughs> this guy I got my eye on this guy he's a, a writer at the swamp.media a future podcaster uh now when we left our story here uh, reverend herbert brazier was uh, just promoted uh, to this exclusive parish, I guess you might call it.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's what you'd uh, describe it as.
1: Okay, then Then what happens next?
2: Well, he disappears into obscurity for the rest of his life almost because his rest of his life is shortened. You see, he stays there for probably about, I think it's about uh, 10, 11 years. He's Vicar of Enstone. And then um, as he gets older, he moves over to um, another vicarage, which is nearby in Oxfordshire. It's still in, within basically the same district. He writes a little bit of a, a tiny, just a little, little like pamphlet about the local area and the history. Um, and then in 1981, he dies in a car accident, um, where he's in the central reservation of a road and it, it, someone who was going along the road said he just pulled out just slowly in front of them and they couldn't stop and they crashed into him. How old he was died. he then when he died? um he will oh god i am I'm, I'm gonna have to work this out because he was born in 1917 i'm sure i probably noted it down but he was born in 1917 he died in 1981 oh 63 something like that i think that might be 73 if he died oh, maybe. 17 maybe. and 81
1: uh now you're right 63 okay that's not too old to be a bad driver okay
2: no, 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 no. I I mean, he was on his way to, um, to, to deliver a mass at a local church, right. um, apparently. Um, it, there's no, no one talks about him. No one tells a story about him. So it, to find out what you know about you, or to find out what people know about Hubert Brazier is to find out what other people say about Hubert Brazier or what other people have said. And it's very limited to the amount of information you can find about him. Um, a lot of that is due to um, websites that have gone down over time, maybe for completely innocent reasons, but others that seem to have a little bit more sinister um, tint behind them.
1: Yeah, I've noticed that as well. Sometimes, you know, you, you'll see something, it'll stick in your head, When you go back and look for it a couple of years later. It's been scrubbed off the internet.
2: You know? Well, the archive um, right. dot org is one of the best places um, for 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 investigator nowadays. Um, you can, you can go back through a web page's history. Um, you, you can really, really, you go back to points where, um, they've taken a picture of the website when someone else has already tried to shut it down for not wanting you to see that information. Um, and that's pretty important, um, step in investigation nowadays. Um, what I found, uh, really intriguing yeah, and, and and this is where the story goes uh, next because one of the things to say is that is Hubert Braise's life. His wife uh, passes uh, just a year after he dies, um, uh, finally succumbs of um, MS um, and dies just a year after. So Theresa May is orphaned um, in around 1983 um, and goes on to continue her career to a career that she's got nowadays. But there's nothing amazingly sensational about Hubert his existence, apart from, you know, the odds working with a serial killer and, and the things that everybody go through. Um, he, he, there's nothing really, really intriguing about him. So I couldn't understand why they were trying to, uh, they seemed to be trying to stop anybody asking any questions about him and taking all evidence of him offline. Um I I've, I've first found that uh, uh, one of the, the things that and as, as I'm still investigating now is um, his page. Just after Theresa May became prime minister, his page on Wikipedia got removed. Um, now, you can go to Wikipedia and you can see the conversation amongst the different Wikipedians to why. And a year afterwards, when I had written this story two days later... Um, They re-put his page back on Wikipedia. Um, And so I found that uh, rather suspicious because they said the reason why they had to put his article back up was because she was running for PM. So it was um, obviously in the public interest, but they took it down when she became PM. Mm. So I started investigating um, who takes things down, who's involved in this, um, how the groups work, how Wikipedia works. Um, And I discovered I I discovered about four or five different um, what I would uh, only be able to describe, and they describe on Wikipedia sock-bubbits. They're people who uh, edit pages to kind of uh work for an agenda rather than impartiality. They try and change pages. They try and stop people being able to look into certain parts. Like for instance, the Conservative Party um, used to have a separate page that was known as the Nasty Party and was about their 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 history being called the Nasty Party. Now there was a big effort amongst Wikipedian uh Tories who were openly um working in a project called the Wiki Project, conservatism, and uh, conservative activism, which you can find on wikipedia the information you can see who's a member of this group and some of them are, are trying to change history trying to rewrite wikipedia
1: yeah I, i've dealt with wikipedia for some clients that were online defamation and stuff like that and, and these volunteers kept changing their content on their page and stuff it, mm-hmm. it, it's a bizarre it's a bizarre uh, little setup of volunteers uh you know that all know each other and uh
2: uh, it, all it takes is for two or three people within a certain talk to be undermining um, a story by taking out little bits all of the time. What you find is a lot of these Wikipedia and Sark Power bits, what they do is they, they, before they get banned eventually, um, they, they take away little bits of articles, just one by one, just just like sort of nibble away at them. And over the nibbling way, at times the articles become disjointed, don't make too much sense, and then certain areas are completely removed.
1: I'm, I'm nodding my head as you talk. I, this is exactly what I've come across. It's, it's, mm. it's a very bizarre setup the way they have it going. And, and they're like a, they call, they call my like experience the Wikipedia. Uh, I think what they have a word for it. uh high level Wikipedia editors over there and it's like a little yeah. club and it, but now why would this guy have a wikipedia page to begin with if if he was just like a
2: a priest uh- I couldn't. I couldn't work it out because it just it, I, I, it was originally because he was Theresa May's father. Okay. But who originally put up? Why they created the page? Why that person? I don't think exists on Wikipedia anymore. Um. Some history of their talks uh, exists, but but you you can't really find out any information on why they would decide to put up his his information in the first place. But the only thing that that I can imagine they'd want to hide on the page, is someone would want not to be put on the page, yeah. that what was taken down for that year was um his details of where his placements had been um where he had been um which churches he had gone to um between which years i thought that would possibly be taken down only if someone wanted to hide that information so people couldn't cross-reference it because in this country we have a child abuse inquiry that's going on at the moment. Um, It's been going on for years. It was started under Theresa May with a lot of pressure, and she keeps appointing people who have links to the establishment and links to the alleged um, abusers uh, in the inquiry, and these people keep having to stand down. So we've currently got um, a child abuse inquiry that's looking into certain dioceses And certain um, parliamentary influence put on abuse to cover it up in the 80s. This is where I think people don't want to ask the question. I don't necessarily think that Hubert Brace has done anything wrong in his life. I think that no one wants to ask that question because it could only come out with he knew this person who's now be convicted and he knew this person who was now convicted.
1: Okay, back to this uh, John uh, Botkins Adams. Was there any kind of sexual aspect to his crimes?
2: His crimes, no, didn't seem to be, they didn't seem to be one little, uh, I mean, I, it seemed like he was uh, possibly turned on by the whole stealing from people, maybe. Um, he had his own life, his own, I suppose, in a sense, uh, to fund his sexuality, um, his lifetime in the sexual it was expensive to be homosexual in britain back then i mean you had to hide a lot of things you had to uh, attend certain groups where you had to live the high life so he, he was stealing from people all of the time so he could continue living this high life he was also the type of guy who could manage to forge prescriptions to get people the drugs that they wanted for parties and etc so i mean this guy was 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 in a put himself in a prime place to have a good time
1: now, was homosexuality illegal over there at the time? Because it was here in the yes. States. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
2: Until about 1967, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, that, that it, it actually became legalized. Um, the, the, the history of Britain is so, it feels so traditional. Um, When you look back at it in the history, but then when you actually find out what was happening behind the scenes, it's exactly the same sort of sick place that you could see around today sometimes.
1: So so There's a theory that perhaps Theresa May, by her appointing these people with conflicts of interest in these child sexual abuse cases, is doing this to sabotage the
2: investigation. Well... This isn't, this isn't just, um, uh, I suppose a conspiracy. It's, it's become to Ludric, Ludric, <laughs> stupidly obvious. It's become, it's become to the point. The first person she appointed on this child abuse inquiry was a woman named, um, Butler Schloss. Um, she was Lady Butler Schloss. Um, well linked with the establishment. In actual fact, one of the people who was an alleged um, abuser was served on the same cabinet as her brother, um havers uh, i think his name was peter havers or richard havers um and he worked as attorney general in britain um during the time that leon britain was working in the conservative party seeing as he was one of the people who were going to be investigated in the child sex abuse inquiry having her um, in charge was a conflict of interest so she had to stand down and then they appointed a woman named fiona wolf and within who like Seven eight months, it came out that she had lived on the same street as Leon Britton um, did. Actually, she when when they asked her about, it, she said, "Oh yes, I remember. I remember sending an invite to a party to him and his wife, and they came over for dinner one time." Uh, you, you know, it was really flippantly, like it didn't matter, but it yeah. obviously undermined the investigation again. They had to change. Um, uh, they had to get a new person to ha- chair the inquiry. That person was a new a lady from New Zealand. Um, uh, called um, Dame Goddard, and she came over and found that it was impossible to get any information. People were blocking witnesses from being able to speak. They were just basically still trying to cover things up, and she had to stand down because she said there was no way that she could seek the truth with what with what was happening at the time. so she even stood down because it was pretty obvious that people were trying to stop the case going forward.
1: So is the case going forward now, or is it totally stagnated?
2: Well, I got to be careful because I say the word case, yeah, and I right. don't want to think that this is legally binding. What's even worse about this inquiry that it's just an inquiry. Afterwards, it'll give some recommendations, and then the police will look into whether they need to investigate and make a case of it. So at the moment, it's just a oh, let's have a look at what the evidence is, but they're blocking all of the evidence. The, a new chair has been appointed. One of the people who was on the actual um, child abuse inquiry already. Has has been um, uh, put in charge now, and it, they say it's going to go on as normal, but there's been no sign of it. It's been it, it's been uh, you know like stuttering and starting for so long. This is like now four years, and it seems three four years, and it seems like uh, as Home Secretary, she's um, really tried to uh, uh, obstruct these people get injustice because there's a lot of victims who have been abused um, by a lot of people uh, over a lot of years, and it's been covered up for many years. Now, the, one of the reasons why people link that with Theresa May um, is not only that she's in charge. She was originally in charge of of uh, this child abuse inquiry, um, in charge of putting the people in the places and she, all, of it, all of the mess-ups that went on. Um, she was also her father was also working in the Diocese of Chichester, which is where Eastbourne is, where Dr John Adkins Bodkins, uh, Bodkins was, um Bodkin Adams, sorry, was uh, That diocese is being seen as one of the center of child abuse, um, in during the sixties, seventies, um, and eighties, especially. Um, and now lots of people, uh, who uh, were bishops of Lewis, um, canon Gordon Rideout, many people about in the numbers, even in in their tens, um, priests of little villages have been convicted for child sex abuse during that time. It seems like. She does not want anything investigating into the diocese where her father once worked.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, um, I wanted to ask you to know, what about Prince Andrew uh, and his connections with Jeffrey Epstein here in the States? Is that still being talked about in the news over there?
2: Not one little bit, because the news is, is, is run by, uh, of course, the BBC, which is, I mean, the head of the BBC news is a man called James Hardin, who went to school with George Osborne, who's the ex-chancellor and Conservative Party member from, um, the previous administration, from Cameron administration. Um, he's, he's an obvious Tory, um, and it's supposed to be impartial. So we don't get to hear anything about that. To be perfectly honest, when you start talking about Jeffrey Epstein to people, um, in this country, they go blank. They don't know what you're talking about, and they don't know any of the horrors that have been.
1: Well, people here don't don't realize the connections between Epstein and Trump. You know,
2: In, <laughs> indeed. I, I mean, I've heard some fantastic stories, but I I would really like to see, uh, you know, some fantastic evidence coming out of of some of that story because I think there is there it is there to be found.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Now we're we're running out of time. We've only got a few minutes more. Is there anything left with the Theresa May story with a father that we haven't gotten to? I,
2: I I wouldn't say so. I would say the question out there um, is, is this directed? Is this purposely directed at Theresa May's father? Were they trying to take away his history or are they just trying to um, take away the history? And I'm talking about conservatives now, active right wing conservatives. In both UK and America, and probably over the rest of the world, um, are they actually trying to rewrite the history of conservatism? Are they trying to slowly take away the things that might cause trouble in the future, so that they can have a clean run and and get away with lying continuously um, to people? Uh, I I I think that's the question that needs to be asked. Is it that this is just another symptom of? Or it might not even be people who are connected to Theresa May. It's just people who want to keep conservatism in power.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. They want they want a clean, uh, clean face on on yep. in their operation. Now, or um, you you were Hinton before you're working on something big. Can you give us any?
2: <laughs> I hate to. Oh. <laughs> well, it includes no, no, no. It includes okay. um. Richard Spencer, who's your famous American, uh, far right, Heil Trump, um, got punched in the face, Nazi. Um, okay. I'm not sure if you know of him. You probably do. Yeah. Um, he's in a group over here, um, as well. Um, cause he's part of the, uh, a Washington Institute, um, some sort of right wing think tank. Um, he also comes over and he does a talk with a group over here. I'm currently my, my investigation into sock puppets led to someone within this group. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, incredibly, I found, I found, um, someone within the group who is completely lying to everybody else. It's a confidence trickster, you could say. Um, and it is very intriguing because it's a right wing group that's right on the edge of, uh, if they've received this information, probably dying out very quickly. So that's what I'm working on at the moment, but I'll, I'm, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a bit quiet about it at the moment. Okay,
1: great. No, thank you so much. Uh Johnny Vetter, okay, and uh this great. and you, you write for this uh uh this the swamp.media all the time, right? There's,
2: yeah, yeah, the swamp.media, but also um it's part of vocal.media. Now if you go to vocal.media, you'll find a range of magazines, a range of different things, and you can start actually writing for them yourself and they do actually pay you.
1: Oh, very nice, really. Uh, yeah, okay, you know, that's good. I always got a lot of content I'm putting out there. And you can find Johnny at uh at Johnny Vedmore at uh, Twitter. And um, as soon as you get your podcast going, man, we'll talk about that, because I, I can help you uh, get that around here in, in the States and Awesome. Stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. This is this is good quality stuff, man. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the interview. And as soon as this other thing comes up, get a hold of me. We'll put you right on here, okay?
2: I would love to, that It's been really nice to speak to you, fella.
1: And you really are. What would you call yourself? The most patient guy in the globe, you call yourself. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Very likeable, man. Thank you very much, sir.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Have Give a nice it. one.
1: Good night. All right, Johnny Vedmore. I really like this guy. Um, uh, his website that he writes for is theswamp.media, and you can find him. I'm going to add him right now on uh, on Twitter, at uh, Johnny Vedmore on Twitter. Writer, musician, working on a podcast. Ah, oh, cool. I was going to ask about the Manchester bombing. I forgot to ask him about that. That's okay. We'll have him back. I'm sure we'll have him back. I, I really like the guy. Um, so now, listen, if you like our shows, you know what's going on. Well, you know what I'm going to say, right? Oh, I I can't. I can't beg you enough here, guys. You know, uh, we're we're sitting here. You know, I, this week, I got so much content out there. Poor uh, Sean Duff from strawmanmusic.com, you know, our, our musician friend. here is a drummer. he's a singer. Um, and uh, he helps with the website. And he puts up all these shows, these shows in the member section. He loads them up to the member section. And then he does the special archives. He updates the... Uh, uh, the The bookstore, and this is hours and hours and hours and hours of work. If I had to hire someone to do this, I'd have to pay them more than I make off all this. But Sean's a cool guy, and he does this for me out of the goodness of his heart because he he likes the work we're doing here. He's supportive of the work. Um, this is why I'm I'm so careful about how I talk about Canadians because I, I don't want to offend my good friend Sean Duff. So I I overlook that. I overlook his Canadianism. Uh, I I, I as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But the thing is, we're, we're uploading all this content here, And I'm, we, I got so much stress this week because we got this move coming up. I, my, I don't have a car right now. My car's being fixed again. I got the, the thermostat. Second time I'm putting a thermostat in this car. In the, in the two years I've had it. And so we're all stressed out, me and Vic, because she's got debate this summer. She, You know, we were going to take a little trip. I have a funeral in California on the 20th. I can't even go to my uncle. You know, fascinating guy. I'd love to go uh, show my respects over there. A lot of family members I haven't seen in a long time there. Uh, June 28th, I don't think we're going to make that now. And Victoria has debate camp this summer, and she has all these projects she's doing, and now we got to move, you know? So I've been uploading a ton of shows uh, trying to increase membership at uh, oppermanreport.com. So because of this situation, this urgent situation where we need to raise funds, Uh, What I'm offering is if you sign up for a year for 75 bucks, I send you an autographed copy of my book, how to become a successful private investigator. And the first chapter of that book is like my bio, my little history of my life. And it's a lot more detailed than uh, the one you can find online. And a lot of things in there I I don't talk about, you know, openly. Um, I I may hint around about it, but some things I talk about that are are in there. Um, So there you go with that. Okay. If you really want to help out, and you really want to save money, 69 bucks, you get 13 months and an autograph book still, but you got to send me a PayPal request. You got to send me the money through PayPal, 69 bucks, so I get it right away. We'll have it uh, to have the money for the deposits and the movers. It's not like the old days where I can move three bedrooms of furniture by myself. I got to hire movers now. I got a hernia, you know? So that's what we're doing. And you want to sponsor the show? Uh, as you can tell, we got a brand new sponsor, this archival revival. You can find them at archival.revivalblogspot.com and you can email them at archival revival, uh, gmail at gmail.com or you can contact me. I'll put you in touch with them. What they're trying to do is, uh, purchase, uh, rare Christian films. If you have old Christian films on, on 35 millimeters so that they can restore them, so you actually make money off of this, if you have any kind of these films up in your attic, uh, old Christian uh, films, uh, Archival Revival wants to buy them from you. So if you want to sponsor the show, we've got great rates for you. Uh, thank you so much. And now a word from our sponsors. Don't forget, the show is brought to you by PSCoco.com. Phoebe Saad is an independent curator with the Cocoa Exchange. The Cocoa Exchange is formerly known as Dove Chocolate Discoveries, and they make the finest silky smooth chocolate because the products start with the best cocoa beans, which are tested for quality and flavor by expert technicians. The Cocoa Exchange offers not just premium chocolates, but anything from sauces and spices to brownie and cake mixes, and even coffee and martini mixes. If you wish to treat yourself or someone you love to a sweet and tasty gift, then the Cocoa Exchange is the brand for you. So you go to pscoco.com, you click on the Shop Now button. You can see all their beautiful chocolates. You can order it right now tonight. It could be in your mailbox in a couple of days. Or if you want to get into the chocolate business, you want to be a, a chocolatier just like Phoebe Saad, click the Contact Us button, and you can learn how to get your own website, go into the Cocoa chocolate business, and sell chocolate, and make a little bit of money there. Remember, all these shows on Awake are brought to you by emailrevealer.com. You can go to emailrevealer.com and get a copy of my book, how to become a successful private investigator. Well, you also do all kind of different services for you. An online dating service investigation It's called an online infidelity investigation. And that's where you give us your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend's email address, and we trace it back to their online dating websites. And we return a list of all the dating sites that that email is registered to. We can expand on that investigation and trace it back to porn sites, escort service sites, swinger sites, gambling websites, and even prescription drug websites. If you think your ex-husband or something is addicted to prescription medication or involved in an extreme online pornography addiction, we can produce a report for you that you can use in court. Adoption investigations. If you want to locate your birth parents or your birth child he gave away for adoption, we can do adoption investigations for you. Asset searches for you. Locate bank accounts, hidden assets hidden properties, hidden income, all different kinds of services in the asset search investigation. Email tracing, if you need to locate or identify somebody from just an email address, we can do an email trace investigation for you and all kinds of digital forensics, computer and cell phone, digital forensics, where we can recover deleted content from an email or a hard drive and produce a report for you that you can use in court. That's emailrevealer.com or you can contact me at oppermaninvestigations at gmail.com.
0: It's the Opperman Report. Join digital forensic investigator and PI Ed Opperman for an in depth discussion of conspiracy theories, strategy of New World Order resistance, high profile court cases in the news, and interviews with expert guests and authors on these topics and more. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman.
1: Okay, welcome to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator Ed Opperman, and this show is brought to you by emailrevealer.com. If you go to emailrevealer.com, you can get an autographed copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator, uh, but also to uh, all different kinds of services, there: asset searches, background reports. Uh, if you need to locate someone or identify somebody and you only have an email address, you can do that for you at emailrevealer.com. If you think your email account's been hacked and someone's reading your emails, we can monitor your account, tell you if anybody else is accessing your email account. Uh, catfish investigations. And don't forget the online infidelity investigation. If you think your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend's cheating on you, you give us their email address. We trace it back to online dating websites. So a lot of email related stuff at emailrevealer.com. Also digital forensics, computer forensics, cell phone forensics, uh, recover deleted text messages, all kinds of wonderful services for you there at emailrevealer.com. We have today a returning guest, Brian Sadie, and you can find his website, Uh The last time he was here, we were discussing his book, Drug War, A Trillion Dollar Con Game, and you can find that on amazon.com. You can find it on his website, and I believe it's also in the Opperman Report bookstore. Just came out with a brand new book, and he's open offered for free. It's a free book. Uh, America's Drug War is Devastating Mexico. Uh, I, I suppose it's a book that could write itself. Uh, and, and the times we're living in, Brian, are you there? I'm here. Hey, man. Going. Oh, good. Thanks so much for coming back on the show, man. Thank you so much. Uh, give us an idea. Uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, what's going on? Uh, America's drug war is devastating Mexico. What have you come up with?
0: Uh, well, I mean, exactly. You you, you pretty much hit the, the nail on the head there. It's a book that can write itself, um, really. Um, and we've seen a lot of headlines recently. Um, you know. Another journalist gets killed. There's another shootout with 20 people, you know, people hanging from a bridge. You know, we see all these different stories and we see the statistics that, you know, roughly about a hundred thousand people have been killed in the country over the last 10 years in the drug war. And I, you know, in my opinion, I really wanted to write something that really went deeper, that really kind of illustrated just how badly, um, our country's drug policy is affecting other countries, in particular Latin America and in particular uh, Mexico there. Um, And like I said, we could talk a lot about, um, you know, some some different countries as well to where the the American drug policy is adversely affecting the rest of the world. And um, I think a lot of people don't really understand the real severity of, of what is happening down there, um, and I think it sort of—I think we sort of get desensitized to just how badly things are going. Um, and there's one example, we're trying to think about in our country's history, um, the same Valentine's Massacre that happened during the prohibition alcohol, and seven people were murdered in you know, this gangland-style shooting. And that was sort of the uh, most prompt change probe, it, it was one of many of that. You know, seven people died. But, you know, you look at today, You know that, that happens all the time, and nobody thinks really any of it. Um, in fact, there was a story, um, let's see, it was in late December, early January, it wasn't just seven people who were killed. But there were five different politicians in Mexico who were killed over a five-day period. And, and this this kind of stuff happens happens a lot. So it's you can only imagine that politicians are getting murdered. Weapons to the average person, the um, drug. I mean, it just it affects their country in in, in every way imaginable. There's just so many stories, and that, that's really what I wanted to get across um, to people because. Again, everybody knows these kinds of things, but I don't think that they realize just how bad these things are. You know, we're we're really, we're well aware that the drug war in the United States, domestically, you know, has been a horrible policy. It's been counterproductive. It's cost our country over a trillion dollars in, in government spending. But the situation is actually much. It, it, it harms other countries even worse, far worse.
1: Well, let me ask you a question. Because uh, I'm 55 okay. years old, right? And, and so I was growing up in the mm-hmm. days of Miami Vice, you know, Miami Vice is, you know. Okay. <laughs> you know, I even <laughs> dressed like that, okay? I had one of those briefcases. <laughs> okay? Hey, nothing wrong
0: you and basically everybody else. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: But the thing is, what happened to, to change from, like, Columbia being the supplier, coming through Florida? Suddenly one year, like a flip of a switch, all of that started coming through Mexico. How did that happen?
0: Uh, well, that, that is a good question. Um, pretty much when Cali Cartel fell, that was, you know, they were very, you know, aligned with, with the Colombian government there. Now, until I mean, it's just sort of this battleground, it's not as though Colombia, you know, has lost power or anything. Um, Colombia still, last year, I think was still the top, uh, producer of cocaine. Um, but a lot of it had to do with the way the cartels, they, they, they started to form these alliances with the Mexican cartel. Originally, you know, Colombia didn't, um, you know, Medellin and Cali, they didn't really have these uh, business relationships with the Mexican cartels. They were viewed as competitors. Then eventually they sort of became business partners. And as that started happening, happen, then, you know, the Mexicans, they started to cut them out. Um, and that's kind of an oversimplification. Um, but don't, uh, don't cry for the Colombian cartel. They're still doing very well, (laughs) although it's, uh, not quite as, uh, consolidated. It's really spread out, um, over a lot of different crime groups. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with Mexico also transitioning into different drugs. It's really one of the, one of the biggest producers of methamphetamine in the world. Um, and it's also, uh, I think that it's, that's number three as far as the producer, uh, uh, as far as production of opium. So the cocaine, not so much, um, but, you know, marijuana, uh, meth and, and, and heroin, those, those are really the Mexican drugs. Um, Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, that's really where you see most of the, the cocaine production coming from. Um, and it's difficult to, Send that stuff directly from, um, Colombia to the U.S. So you need those different transshipment points. So that's one of the biggest reasons why there is so much chaos in Mexico because it, it's just simple logistics. It borders the U.S. So, and in particular, those border cities like Tijuana, Juarez, Laredo, where the highest, you know, volume occurs because that is such a valuable piece of real estate.
1: Yeah, like little towns like Naco and uh, and Nogales and stuff like that uh, in in Arizona. There was a ton of marijuana used to come over those uh, borders uh, back in the eighties. Now you're saying though, even now with all the, the grow operations going on here in the United States, there's still a, a lot of marijuana comes up from Mexico.
0: Um, less less than uh, less than in the past. That's actually one of the few drugs that where there has been a verifiable reduction in production. Mm-hmm. It's marijuana. It's it's pretty obvious because of legalization. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean it's still obviously a, a pretty large producer, but it's the only one where we can actually see a, a demonstrable difference in production. And it's again, just pretty simple. Legalization solves this problem. And it, again, it's all because of the prohibition of drugs. Yeah.
1: Now, now, what about the, the the Mexican gangs? Do they have any influence in, in the grow operations that go on here in, in North America? I
0: haven't come across that. Um, okay. That I don't know about. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't think so. Again, they don't really have that sort of influence. It's. I mean, they have a tremendous influence in Mexico. I mean, drug money, it goes all the way to the top. And it's been that way for a long time. Um, the current president, uh, Enrique uh, Peña uh, Nieto, yeah, there's all kinds of scandals that really point to drug money, um, his, you know, his predecessors as, as well. Um, it's just which, which drug cartels are you in bed with? Um, there, was a, there was a scandal called Monexgate. And uh, Monex, uh, it's, a, it's a banking financial institution down in Mexico. And uh, long story short, members of the Juarez cartel were laundering their money, and the money was starting to funnel its way into the campaign funds for, for the PRI, which is the, the dominant political party, the current dominant political party, who also um, holds the presidency. And it, there's just been a lot of other stuff, uh, all kinds of other stuff that really shows that the narco money, it doesn't just control the local politics. It, again, it really goes all the way to the top. So when you look at that, I don't really see why, again, I'm just speculating on on your question as far as that. I don't see why they would risk exposure where they don't really have the same political power in the U.S. that they have in Mexico. Uh, does that make sense? Yes, it does.
1: Now, uh, I know that one of the richest men in the world lives in Mexico, right? And you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, Carlos call Slim. Yeah, right. Okay, man. Man. okay, good. Now, this, <laughs> and now how could oh, I was just about to look up his name. Now, could it, it be any coincidence that the richest man in the world, uh, one of the richest men in the world, uh, is down there where all these drugs are coming through? Does he have any connection to the drug traffic?
0: The, I've, I've read the rumors. I've never read anything that definitively proves it. Um, the thing is, there's, there's all kinds of corruption. It's not, in, it's not all narco corruption. Hmm. Um, really where he got a lot of his wealth, um, it goes back about three decades ago, um, at the Salinas presidency. And it's a really kind of interesting story. Um, PBS did a great documentary on this. And, he not only was the Salinas administration, it wasn't they weren't just in bed with the drug traffickers. They were in bed with all of you know basically the business oligarch in the country. And just to come to this private meeting um before he before he's elected, we had to pay I think it was like a million dollars to sit at the table. That's what that, you know, went in his pocket. And he just sort of made all these different backdoor deals where they privatized all these different industries. Um he called from mm-hmm. our he's a big uh, telephone guy so he, he got, you know what was essentially government monopoly was then privatized and just and there was no real competition. It was all handed over to one guy. So and that's that's where he's made a lot of his wealth. Now there are rumors, um, and I, like I said, I've read about him that he's connected, but I haven't seen anything to where I would feel comfortable with. Although I mean, you can suspect it and it's sure, you know, but I again I, I don't know of anything definitive.
1: What about, about Vincente Fox? What have you heard about Vincente Fox? What about him? Yeah, have you heard anything?
0: Oh, you mean just, I mean, he's kind of, he's you know, he's pretty a vocal guy. I know he's a big uh, Donald Trump critic. <laughs> he's um, He kind of made a big name. A lot of Americans like him because uh, he sort of pointed out, hey, the problems in Mexico are directly related to America's struggle now, now, and again, a lot of people like him for a reason, but sometimes he's never really being very honest about that. Um, There's one of uh, Mexico's top journalists. Her name's Annabelle Hernandez. She wrote a book, Narco Land. I don't know if you're familiar with that one.
1: Yeah, I think I've heard of it, yeah.
0: Really well respected, really well respected book. Um, and long story short, she basically, she made the ties proving that this one obscure politician, Vicente Fox, basically came out of nowhere, all of a sudden gets this, you know, this, this huge influx of cash and it helps to launch him into, you know, running and winning the presidency. And she makes the point, and she's, I think, proves it pretty adequately, that a lot of that money came from the Sinaloa cartel. Some, and then when you start to look at um, the, the government under his leadership and his successor this Felipe uh, Calderon, they're both from the same party. And that was actually the opposition party. Because before um, Fox, the, the, pre, the PRI, that, that party had literally been in power for 80-something years, unopposed. So Vicente Fox was the, the changing of the guard, right? And what happened was... I mean, everybody knows that you know the Sinaloa Cartel's been the most powerful drug organization for a long time. But what a lot of people don't realize is, uh, well, first of all, Vicente Fox he was the one who uh, brought the military into the drug war. In other words, um, the military didn't didn't uh, do domestic law enforcement until he started doing that, that was two thousand and five. Now, his successor Felipe Calderon. He was the one who actually proudly launched their war on drugs, and he really escalated. Um, so the military is brought into the equation. Um, there's now, like, uh, basically around 50,000 troops in Mexico actively, um, quote-unquote, fighting this war on drugs. But you have to really look at how those resources are used. And when that war was launched, it happened in Coincidentally or not coincidentally, be in key locations and going against the Sinaloa cartel's rivals, weakening them in specific regions where the Sinaloa cartel wanted to expand, in particular Juarez. So again, yeah, he's, I get it. You know, a lot of people like him in particular. He's very, uh, a very big Trump critic. Um, and, and again, he is calling out the truth. That we do need Nr1 on drugs, it is causing a lot of their problems, but not really revealing the full truth.
1: Let me ask you a question now. If we look back throughout history, right, we see Iran Contra. You know, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> it's going on galore. You know, they're bringing up coke. You know, I've, I've had uh, everybody Rick Ross on the show. You know, I've, I've, you know, we've covered that extensively. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Sure. Uh, we've covered that galore. Yeah. You know, I've done a ton of shows on on Iran oh, Contra. Yeah. You know, oh yeah. I I feel like I know all those guys at right. <laughs> this point. Yeah, I feel like we will <laughs> become friends. Like, like we could go into business together if you wanted. to. <laughs> but, but the thing is, is uh, so much CIA involvement in bringing drugs up from South America. Right? It, does that continue to this day?
0: Um, and I've always sort of like split hairs a little bit on this because. Okay. I wouldn't say necessarily the CIA themselves bring it, but their operatives, their assets, absolutely. Um, That's a good question. Um, Exactly which countries? I haven't seen a whole lot. I mean, you see it in Afghanistan, where, again, the political, um, in other words, whoever our political allies are, and their administration is tied to certain elements of drug trafficking. And we look the other way. Um, In Afghanistan, there's a literal hit list for different drug traffickers that are um, they're closely associated with the Taliban, versus there are a lot of drug traffickers that were very close to the Karzai administration, and mm. the Karzai administration was was obviously on the CIA's payroll, a close ally of the U.S. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's 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 a lot. Again, i have sort of split hairs on the fact. A lot of people say CIA themselves trafficking the cocaine. And I get why they say it, but I, I really, more
1: point, it, it's the CIA's asset. Um, well, well thing, let me stop you there for I a second like because, point. you know, oh, I had on, yeah. uh, you, you're familiar with um, uh, Lynn Ives, uh, the mother of the boys on the tracks, right down there in Mina, Arkansas. Her sons were killed on the railroad tracks down in Mina, Arkansas. Right. And I had her attorney on the show. It's a great, this guy's, man, what a great show. This guy is it's like a, like a one man law firm. He's trying to take on the whole U.S. government with this. Uh, FOIA, uh, uh, lawsuit, but in his FOIA lawsuit, he's got this thing, he's got it all laid out step by step by step. And he even talks about how one of Bill Clinton's, uh, um, state troopers says to Bill Clinton, I want to mm-hmm. go and apply to be in the CIA. And Clinton says, okay, go see my buddy over here in the CIA. And the first, his interview his job interview was a coke run down to columbia and back to mina <laughs> okay you know what i mean there's right. a cia plane oh, yeah. yeah you know
0: so oh, yeah there's all kinds of those links yeah know? when you talk about that i mean literally the um the top honduran uh, drug lord back in the 80s uh juan Mata balusteros his own company was called secco you probably remember that name well, that company happened to be hired to send in humanitarian aid, okay. quote-unquote humanitarian aid, to the Contras. Now, even though it was known that he was the top drug trafficker in the country, you know, the list goes on and on. The reason why I kind of split those hairs is because I feel like falsely it sort of isolates the CIA when this is really a problem that involves Many levels of the federal government. It's U.S. Customs, it's DEA. Um, and to oversimplify these things. Yeah, the DEA. I mean, the DEA has to answer. Has to is basically second fiddle to the CIA. So in other words, our our um, our geopolitical interests go above the drug war. is, I guess probably the better
1: way of gotcha. Okay, of that that makes perfect sense right. what you're saying. Okay, thank you. Now, now, now what do you think now with with Trump in office? Do you think you see any differences, any kind of a, but the Trump, you know, what do you think?
0: (laughs) I (laughs) I don't think I'll see any difference. Um, I would say, I would point to um, the Honduran election. You familiar with that? story? Even if you are, I'm pretty sure uh, some of the audience isn't. Yeah, go ahead. So long long story short, last November, Honduras held an election. And within about the halfway point of the election, the opposition um, candidate, very liberal left-wing guy, political outsider, was ahead in the polls. It was very unexpected. So what happened was the election commission basically sh- stopped producing results. And then all of a sudden, at the end, they, you know, when there's about like one percent of the votes left to be cast, yes, they're like, "Guess what? The incumbent." Juan Orlando Hernandez is in the driving position here to win. So, and again, I know a lot of people aren't going to be familiar with that name, but um, Juan Orlando Hernandez, he's the right-wing incumbent, very much um, an economic and military ally of the U.S. Um, Went to school in New York, businessman. um, You know, when, when those first results were announced, the bond market in Honduras crashed. And again, a lot of it comes down, comes down to economics because he's, you know, very, uh, basically a big ally of the World Bank, you know, fiscal responsibility, the kind of stuff that the United States loves as an ally. Um, so obviously you know, there's a lot of suspicion about that election. Well, you know, all these different, well, I wouldn't say all this, but several different, um, international organizations have said that this is, this sure looks like election fraud. Um, you can look at a really independent source, The Economist, and, and anybody knows anything about The Economist? It's not a a leaning hippie rag by any means. And The Economist analyzed the results, and they couldn't say definitively that there was election fraud, but there was. I forget the exact terminology that they used, but basically that it was it was likely that there was election fraud. So. In the face of that, you know, the, uh, several different international organizations are saying, you know, we need, to, we need to start this thing over again. We need to have more monitoring. But the United States congratulates them for the win, recognizes them as, um, and it's, it's basically a long-term trend. And when, to get back on the drug subject there, anybody knows anything about Honduras, you can look at it. That is a highly corrupted um, government. I mean, all the way up to the White House, his own brother, the brother of the president, has been brought or, or was requested to come to Miami as a person of interest in a high-level drug, uh, DA investigation. Um, the, his predecessor in office, Pepe Lobo, his own son, is currently in prison in the United States for being a major drug trafficker. Hmm. Um, and this is it's all part of um, well again you kind of have to go back a little bit in time Um, back in 2009 there was a military coup that took place there and it ousted a a left wing you know sort of uh, Maduro uh, I would say loyalist or sort of in line with the other socialists in the area so he was ousted and the US we kind of we kind of played around with the term. We didn't want to use the term "coup" for a while. Eventually, they, it, it was just too obvious. You had to acknowledge that a coup took place, and temporarily, the U.S. we you know we cut off foreign aid to them. And when I say foreign aid, a lot of people are thinking you know rice bags for the poor. That's not where. That's not how we give our foreign aid, especially in Honduras. It's military aid, um, and we call it like counter narcotics. But it's 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 military aid. Um, so point being that once uh, the they launched a, another back in two thousand and nine, the interim government was um, it was led by a guy named uh, Billy Hoya. He was the top uh, security person for this you know this coup regime, and I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he was actually the head of a wing death squad back in the eighties. Um, so he was you know on the air, you know, on TV trying to, you know, calm the people. But long story short, what's happened in Honduras, it's really been, it's been a brutal regime. A lot of people have been killed. A lot of activists have been killed. And our tax dollars are paying for this. Um, Does the name Berta Caceres ring a bell?
1: It does, uh, you know,
0: she was um, an environmental activist down in Honduras, and she was, you know, she was executed by the military, or at least all indications lead to it. And point of what I'm trying to get to is we have all of this sort of military aid or counter-narcotics aid, and we tried to, or some congressmen like, like uh, Pat Leahy, they tried to put, um, you know, human rights restrictions mm. on this, and that never happened. None of that ever actually happened. Because Honduras and other countries, they, they are a military and economic ally. We have a pretty big uh, military base there, and we just we don't want to, our government, I shouldn't say we, our government doesn't want to relinquish that.
1: So basically you're saying that uh, countries that are friendly to the United States um, will we'll prop them up using the drug business, but if, if they're not friendly to the United States, we'll use our drug uh, enforcement money to, to overthrow their governments.
0: Yeah, overthrow it or at least at least harass it. Um, it's a. I like to give this sort of. A, I guess that you can oversimplify. You look throughout Latin America. There's a long history toward the military. It has a corrupt involvement in drug trafficking. Mm. Um, whatever sort of authoritarian leader that they kind of have, like a sort of a handshake agreement with the military. You can sort of traffic on all the drugs you want, but you're going to help protect my regime, any sort of, you know, uh, you know, political activists or whatever, any sort of enemy of the state, you're going to repress that. And it happens on both sides. It happens with the left wing. It happens with the right wing. Um, you see it a lot in Venezuela. We see these kinds of stories all the time. And guess what? That that kind of story lands on the front page all the time. Whenever, whenever Maduro does something, you know, corrupt, we in America, we know all about it. It's you know, it's very well known. But when happens with a right wing leader, barely ever makes a newspaper and the US government doesn't really do much about it. Um if you look at the sanctions list in Venezuela, it is lengthy, lengthy for so in other words, anybody who has some sort of um, human rights abuses or allegations of that stuff will put these sanctions on them to where we can take their assets that are here in the u s and there 's all kinds of other economic pressure that we can put on them um but again, if you look at the other side of the table it is it 's really kind of astonishing um let 's see who are, what I talk about <sighs> So I just need a little swig of water right there. Well, well then, um, let, let,
1: let, me yeah. let me interrupt you for okay. a second because when, when we see these on the news here, right, in, in Venezuela, and they talk about the food shortages in Venezuela, how much of that is uh, organic and how much is that is, that is caused uh, by uh, the markets, the, the, the capitalist markets, uh, holding, a, you know what I mean, uh, um, taking a, a revenge against the Venezuela.
0: It's a good point. I think it's probably a combination of both. Um, I don't. Think, I personally don't think that. Um, I think that you can blame all of Venezuela's problems on the U.S. I do think some of it. Um, it does affect their oil industry, mm. but they you know they basically have everything on the everything's Everything for price of bread, water, and there's just this rampant inflation. Uh, there's there's literally black markets to go buy bread or gas or all these kinds of things. I think. I think that I think it is justified to criticize, you know, to give the bulk of the criticism to that government. I do think that's fair.
1: And But when you see stuff like how they um, expel a bunch of uh, U.S. Um, uh, embassy workers because they had a plot to shut down the electric grid, <laughs> the power grid. And, then you know, a month later, the whole power grid goes down. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, it's right there oh, yeah. in your face. You know?
0: And I mean, we were, we were, and we, you know, the the attempted coup took place in 2002. All right. I don't, we didn't maybe necessarily actively help coordinate that, but the second, um, Andara, if I remember, that was his name, uh, no, Kamara, I'm sorry, Kamara, we, you know, when he walked into the, you know, into the palace there, we immediately you know, recognized him right. as the leader. Um, there was a lot of, uh, um, yeah, we 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 had a lot of close ties with the with the people who were involved in that. So yeah, no, I get what you're saying, and I'm not really taking a, I would say take a side on it. I'm more just sort of pointing out the hypocrisy of it all. Um, I, I, I would say uh, let's see
1: here. Well, this is a good time to take a commercial um, break. Okay, uh with, with Brian okay. Sadie The new book is called "America's Drug War Is Devastating Mexico," uh, but you really got to check out the body of Brian's work because it's a whole. Uh, Uh, I okay? Uh, One of the other ones is um, The Drug War, A Trillion Dollar Con Game, uh, Decriminalizing Prostitution, and then Dealing from the Bottom of the Deck, and Pretty Much Decriminalizing Victimless Crimes, Prostitution, Gambling, and The Drug War. Uh, So check out these other books as well. The Drug War, A Trillion Dollar Con Game, Decriminalizing Prostitution, uh, The Common Sense Solution, Uh, Dealing from the Bottom of the Deck, uh, all all by Brian Sadie. Uh, We'll be back with more Brian Sadie after these messages uh, from our sponsors. Okay, welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator, Ed Opperman. Uh, Before we get back to our guest, Brian Sadie, uh, author of uh, this new book, uh, America's Drug War is Devastating Mexico. Uh, If you like the show and you like what you hear, make sure you check out OppermanReport.com where we have our member section. You can go there. You can sign up, become a member. There's, a, We have all exclusive content, exclusive shows uh, that you won't hear Friday night, you won't hear Saturday night or Sunday night. So only exclusive to members at the website. Uh, there's also all kind of lawsuit documents up there, the Trump uh, University lawsuits are up there, uh, and Jeffrey Epstein documents and videos and stuff. All different kind of content there at OppermanReport.com and it helps support the show. Uh, but we're here today with Brian Sadie. America's drug war is devastating Mexico. Now, Brian, I was looking at the the description of the book, uh, uh, America's Drug Wars Devastating Mexico, and you describe um, the story of those Mexican students that were kidnapped down there. Uh, Now, I actually did a couple of shows on that because my sponsors, I had some sponsors at the time, uh, the New World Mexican women, they were a jewelry collective. They used to make wholesale jewelry down there and uh, they were sponsors of the show and they lived in that town where those students were uh, kidnapped. What did you come up with on that?
0: Um, well, uh, a lot. Okay. Uh, first of all, I would say there's so much of this stuff that doesn't make way to the news. Uh, I mean, to the U S uh, But if you read the Mexican newspapers, the amount of public information, you know, it, it's really, really stunning. Um, and uh, I would say that, well, one of the things that to me was really, but one of the most disturbing aspects is, okay, so the gang that's responsible for that, uh, they're called Guerrero's Unidos, right? Um, And one of the leaders of that gang, he has a brother in the military. Um, And again, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, where the military is often very actively involved um, in drug trafficking. And, The thing with with that story that kind of got lost in translation is what it really looks like, um, well, actually, let me me back up a touch. Because those those students who were kidnapped, they commandeered a bus to go to a a protest that was in protest of a massacre that that was committed by an anti-government protest in which the Mexican government went in and massacred the protesters. So they were leaving town. They commandeered a bus. But the thing that you have to know is that the Los Guerrero Unidos, the, the gang that's responsible for that, their their mode of trafficking was that they would take these passenger buses, and the, the the drugs would go from from their territory to Chicago, and they would use these, like I said, these passenger buses. So basically, all indications lead that the drugs were on that bus that they commandeered and, um, and it was th- that shipment was being supervised by you know, different people within the government. So when he commandeered that bus, that is actually um, most likely the reason for their death. Some people have said it's for political reasons, all this when No, it's it just, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now what's happened um, pretty much anybody follows it can see that there there was There's definitely been a cover up, a big cover up. Um, and first of all, um, again, the fact that the leaders, the leader of that gang, his brothers in the military was withheld. It took, you know, um, this investigative journalist group in Mexico called, um, Animal Politico. They do just some really amazing investigative journalism. Um, but the fact that the government were, you know, was withholding every bit of information about this particular guy in the military. Wouldn't, wouldn't give any information. Um, but the, the biggest thing that I came across that this was so disturbing is that when this investigation was going on, there was a little black book of the gang leader that was confiscated. And in that little black book it was the names and numbers of all these different Political figures, and one of them was the attorney general's office. Mm. And this book magically disappeared (laughs) during the course of the investigation. And I mean, it's just, there's so many stories like this that you see. And and again, it's just so heartbreaking. And again, like I said, really the root cause is this war on drugs. That's what's causing this, most of this corruption, or a great deal of this corruption.
1: And with those students, were their bodies ever found?
0: I know one was i hmm. mean um, the, here's the here's another awful thing in the process of looking for those bodies, they discovered other mass graves you know people who are unrelated to that one there's oh, i mean there's there's mass graves all across that country um there's like i guess I mentioned the the hundred thousand people who were mur- who've been murdered course, of the drug war. Well, there's another thirty-something thousand who just disappeared. That um, you know, who are presumed to be dead. So it, it's it's really it's really an awful story, and that's also not accounting for the there's roughly two hundred eighty thousand people who are considered domestic refugees. In other words, the violence and the police corruption. It's so bad that they have to leave their homes or you know, gangs have taken over their homes or their territory. They have to leave that area and they're really a refugee with their own within their own country. You know, it's it, it like I said, it is really it's just heartbreaking stuff. It really is.
1: Yeah, that 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 really is when you think about it. Now, if we were to legalize all these drugs here in the United States, this would totally cure that situation down there south of the border?
0: I wouldn't say totally cure it. Um one of the biggest things is that because they've, they've grown so much in power, you see it a lot, you saw a lot with the, with the mafia, the Italian-American mafia, they've diversified, you know, um, for example, uh, oil theft, it, it's, it's, um, it's over about one and a half billion dollar black market in Mexico, where they steal the money from the, from the oil mines And it's sold on the black market. So there's a lot of these other crimes, um, that the that the cartels are deeply involved in. But um I would say that you you would put a major dent in this criminal activity because the biggest driver of it is the drug war. I mean it's the United States there's about a hundred billion dollar market each year for illegal drugs. That's what that's what's driving all of that's what buys the cops. That's what buys the politicians um that that's what buys the armament um, you know, one of the things I came across was, um, the Jalisco new generation cartel. That's pretty much the top rival. Some people even say bigger than, um, the Santa Lola cartel, their armament budget is about $120 million Wow, that's on par with Al Qaeda. You know, this is. Um, but again, if if you can take away those drug profits, you can. They're going to lose most of their money is coming in from the drug war. They make a lot of money in extortion, robbery, all this type of stuff. But the real profit comes from the drugs.
1: Wait, no, wait. Let me ask question, you a question. They, they buy those arms from us, or we oh, give it to
0: them? Uh, well, you heard you the Fast and Furious thing. Yeah, that's not all of the arms, but yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of the drugs. I mean, a lot of the guns are coming from the U.S. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you
1: say we? No, no. Um, I mean, you said that you said, you, refer- you said for the for the drug war down there that they have a hundred they have a hundred billion dollar uh, arms uh, uh, budget. Million dollars, A hundred I mean, million. Right. So they they right. buy those arms from us, or we give them those arms?
0: Oh no, I would say that that's bought on black market most of that. Oh,
1: okay. But oh, okay.
0: the source, the root source, that's for so many of the guns in this world is, is the United States. Yeah. It's one of the biggest uh, you know, producers of guns.
1: Hey, real quick, what did you come up with? Fast and furious? Did you come up with anything on that? Um, yeah, I didn't look too deeply into that. Uh,
0: that is what one um, of the uh, are the high level members of the Sinaloa cartel it basically said that that was part of their agreement. Um, but no, I, I I couldn't. I really wouldn't be comfortable, you know, making a definitive statement on that because it's it's the kind of thing that gets misconstrued, and I right. I really haven't come up with enough to really put my foot down on that one.
1: All right, then let me ask you this. Since the last time you've been on the show, um, and last time we were talking about your, your other book, the, what's um, that, the Trillion Dollar War? Uh, uh,
0: the Drug War, a Trillion Dollar
1: Con Game. Right. right. And, and, and trillion Dollar Con Game. And since you've been on, since then, we've legalized marijuana here in Nevada, recreational marijuana, in California wreck is about to be legalized, even though it's pretty much been legal with that stupid right. medical card thing. You go down to Venice Beach you buy right. you, you buy a car. They have some guy in a doctor's a uh, scrubs selling you the car. Then they, you know, they're making 10 dollars an hour. They're not doctor. Right. But anyway, uh what what do you think? What do you make of this now? Do you think this is working out this legalizing marijuana so far?
0: I think overall it's positive. I mean, Colorado, I would say is really the real example. I mean, um crimes down but you know, it's paying for you know, paying for a whole lot of um there's a whole lot of very positive things that used to come directly out of taxpayer and out of our, out of our paychecks. This is coming from, you know, that's actual revenue from drugs. It's um, I've seen a lot of evidence that it actually is cutting down on opioid addiction. Hmm. I mean, and there's a lot of positives. I mean, worst case, worst case you can say we're at a, a neutral position, but we're making a ton of, you know, a ton of money on the, uh, with the tax revenue. I I think it's, it's a real big positive. You're keeping, keeping, go in the cops, um, go actual, you know, pursue actual crime. The thing is we're we're still not really in a fully legalized state, even when it is legal. Um, the, most of these, uh, most of the banks won't take the money from those dispensaries. So it, you know, it leaves it leaves them open to possible money laundering charges. It and when, since they have to do business in cash, like it's leaving it open to robberies. So we're still not we're still not really there. Plus, you, you know, you've got Jeff Sessions who's trying to do everything he can to reverse these laws. You now it's. I, there's been a lot of progress made. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it's the right direction. Absolutely, it's the right direction.
1: Well, you know, well, you think so because I notice here in Nevada because it's just happened. You know, just the, the first of the month, it just happened, and the, like the first twenty four hours, it was crazy here. Everybody was smoking. Like, you know, it's just insane. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got a neighbor that. here. You can smell it through the walls. This guy, I can't even go into my bathroom sometimes. Cause the smoke's coming through the walls so bad. <laughs> so everyone has to smoke like crazy. Right. But the cops are still, uh, you know. With, you go through a whole interrogation when you get pulled over, that's still going on. That hasn't lit up at all. Because you can't have pot in your car. You can't smoke in your car. So they're still searching your car. That hasn't stopped a bit, you know? Uh, And and is it a good idea for so many people to be smoking pot all the time, Uh, you know, if it's so available? I I don't think so either.
0: And it gets gets to a a question of um, were these same people smoking while it was illegal? Did you create new users? And I I don't believe that there's any truth to that. I can can tell
1: you, just as far as teenagers, I don't know about teenagers, but just walking around people. I know there's plenty of people haven't smoked since college or, or, you know, for 20 years uh, that have ran to the store and bought some. I don't know if they've continued. Uh, but was there was a run on those stories.
0: That, <laughs> that leads to the next question: Is this just a phase? And I think that in the, in the initial part of this legalization boom, there, there's there's going to be people like that. But at the end of the day, marijuana is not a physically addictive drug. Um, you know, I, I do I think that some of that. You know, there's going to be sort of this like rebellious, um, release in a way that this stuff's been restricted so long unnecessarily. And yeah, in the initial phases, there probably will be some of that. Um, and again, there are negatives to marijuana use. I've never, I've never, uh, said otherwise, but the, the whole, the whole, you know, criminalization thing that makes, makes all of these negatives far worse. You know, you're adding to this prison industrial complex. All, all of, all of the negatives are magnified far, far worse in a criminalized system. Um, but yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. If, if everybody's, if, you know, suddenly just all of society smoking pot and all that stuff, but the chaos hasn't happened. You know, Colorado's economically one of the states in, in the whole country. Uh, to work, you know, people are still showing up to lose jobs, You know, history's still moving, <laughs> so I, I just don't see that doing anything, uh, event there at all. I think that overall, it, it will be a very big positive for our country. Absolutely,
1: yeah. I've been tempted, you know, to because to, you know it's so easy. And I just go to a store. and you know, I've been tempted to go. I haven't smoked since my twenties. You know, uh, good thirty years. Right,
0: yeah, right. And I've been tempted to go. Check I it was out. in Colorado, yeah. uh, well, not that long ago. I again, I just personally you know and i i didn't I, I just didn't even feel a, a temptation i just personally i don't um like you're talking about you do know some adults who who suddenly indulge now that they have' done a while. I don't personally foresee that being a long term um thing. I just think that some of that's almost just a i don't know what the term to use for it. like but it's again you just this this whole thing has been senselessly criminalized for a long, long time. And it's just, yeah, yeah. Some people are going to act out, but over time, I do see these things coming back to normal. And again, that's what I was talking about before teenage um, usage rates are actually down in states where it is legal. Mm. You've taken away that rebellious aspect of it. Um, And that, if you look at that, that really will point to a a positive long-term trend to where and you will probably have less adults smoking this stuff. Um, if you're in high school, you know, in a place where it's where marijuana is illegal, it's a lot easier to get marijuana than alcohol. Once you make that legal, you have to have somebody at least who has some sort of fake ID or looks old enough. Words, legalization makes it tougher for the teenagers to get it.
1: Yeah, and fake ID these days is practically impossible. you, you got to use somebody else's ID because you, know, you can't make fake ID anymore because they swipe the thing now, you know? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, the, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah barcode has to point. work. Yeah. But but if you have a sister or a cousin, you know, it looks just like you, then, then you got a fake ID. Right,
0: exactly. <laughs> you know, Some I, uncle or something right, will pick right. you up. Or that works. But It that, makes it more yeah. difficult. It actually makes it more difficult for young people to get it. And, um, you know, I, I just, I just think that it's, that there's a, it's a huge positive turnaround in legalization.
1: Yeah. And, and, and guys here person, in Nevada,
0: person, it just doesn't work. That causes far more problems. And
1: more people more problem. here in Nevada that were selling marijuana out of their apartment were selling to teenagers. And now, you know, those guys are out of business because there's just no market right. for those guys anymore. Oh boy. Right. So, okay. I, I still, I don't know. I'm uneasy. I mean, I'm uneasy about the whole thing with the marijuana. Now, what do you think about the sessions? I get, it. Yeah, I get yeah. it. I'm no
0: fan of, uh, I'm no fan of the idea of, you know, everybody smoking butt, but again, it's just it, that nightmare scenario hasn't happened. Yeah. And if it hasn't happened in say Colorado, then I don't see it happening anywhere else because that was really the experimentation, you know, breaking ground, you know, in a way that the nightmare scenario didn't happen there. It's been overall very positive. And the main thing is just, you know, it, it's been a, you know, a big, a big boom to, for the taxpayers.
1: Oh, no, money-wise, yeah, it's, it's a money-making operation. It always has been. That I can uh, testify. Now, what about Sessions, though, uh, throwing in this monkey wrench now where he's saying that he wants federal prosecutors to be prosecuted in marijuana? Now what?
0: Right. And you know, there there's talk that that will actually get Congress to to, wait, to get a motion, which I don't I don't see that happening. That ain't happening for a long time. Um not not through Congress. The states possibly um Vermont's actually the first state where a bill has actually gone through the legislature. Every other state has been ballot measures. Um there's just there's just too much special interest against this stuff. Yeah. But on the flip side now that this industry's starting to grow now they are starting to become part of the, the special interest and again i 'm not for special interest on either side you know it just corrupts the whole it corrupts the whole system but um but yeah I, I, I think that he'll be able to to get away with it badly in my opinion um i didn 't think that he would that he would press this hard just because it is, it is a big industry. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry, and the vast majority. It's if you look at the polls, something like eighty percent of people don't want the federal government involved in this industry. So it's a very unpopular take. So and for a presidency that's at you know <laughs> extremely low approval rating, so he, not a good political move. But he he is an ideologue. He believes in that. So um, I I don't know I don't know where that's going to go.
1: Now, what about um, a couple of years ago? We were driving through Northern California, uh, through wine country and stuff like that. And it seems like um, it openly, it, it was an open secret that a lot of people were growing marijuana up there. You know, uh, even on the local radio stations, people yeah. that were local marijuana growers were like openly talking about it. <laughs> you know, and saying how mm-hmm. big industry was coming in and buying up their properties and, and taking over the business and, and putting them out of business. Uh, what do you see with that? Because that seems to be a Walmart, you know, Walmart pot we're going to have, you know, and, and taking over the pot industry.
0: And I, I've heard that it is one of those few industries where anybody can jump in. Right. I think it's, and I mean, like any industry, big business tends to run things, but this is something, it is a business to where the small mom and pop can stay in business. Um, if it, if there's any industry that, that can fight against that, it is marijuana. So, yeah, there's definitely going to be some consolidation, um, but we really haven't seen that so much. I mean, it it is a, you know, most of these businesses, these are independent businesses. It's not some, Walmart, you know, the Walmart and I want to have to take over yet. So, I mean, um, I get it. I get that argument, but I think that, again, that's sort of their special interest. When you look at, um, you're speaking of California. Um, years ago, when there was a vote um, for legalization, one of the biggest concentrations of votes against it were in those grower regions mm. because they wanted to, they wanted it, it meant less money for them. They were going to get regulated out of the business. They, you know, so again, it's basically, their special interest.
1: Yeah, and you know, another thing it that I shouldn't forget is that uh, you know one of the, the founding fathers of the, the legalized marijuana movement, Dana Beal. Uh, from the New York yippies over there just got arrested uh, just recently the past month uh, for possession of marijuana. You know, it was a large amount, uh, but still, you know, like it, 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 what the hell, you know, how could they, how could they have this one guy sitting in prison right now for 15 years for marijuana and then they could have a store selling it in Colorado, a store selling it here in Nevada. We, we, yeah. we need a solution to this for sure. And the thing, and you
0: know, the thing is the guy like him, he has some, um, basic political capital. He has a a stronger place in this world. He's not a young, say, black or Latino teenager who gets arrested with that and it just sort of pushes them into a a negative cycle. They're much, you know, somebody like that is much more vulnerable to an arrest. I hear, you know, the conservatives, they say things like, oh, well, it's not as, not as strongly criminalized as it was in the past where you know, that simple bus gets you 10 years. And that's true. You know, we've been shifting towards decriminalization for a while. But I mean, statistics show once you're in the system, it is tough to get out of that system. Even if you just get probation, probation, I mean, anything can Basically anything can get you sent to get you sent to prison. Oh yeah, probation yeah. you're guaranteed to get probation.
1: Yeah. You're guaranteed to, to violate probation parole. Uh, but Dana, by the way, is like seventy eight years old. So this is, you know, even a year sentence for him is a life sentence. Right. And I got another client just well, now who just hit me up who was he's out of the country. He's in a foreign country right now, and they found some marijuana back at his house here in the States, and now he can't come back. He's got a nine year old kid. He can't bring his kid back to this country, back to school. He's got to put him in a school in his foreign country because of some stupid arrest back at his house. Hey, so people are still victims of this. uh,
0: Millions and millions of stories. And and it just, and again, it's for a pointless battle that, that altogether is based upon a lie. You know, what, what we're talking about originally, where, these these source countries for the drugs that come into this country, as long as they're a political ally, we look the other way at it. Right. You know. And again, versus say Venezuela, um, I got to. You know, I was going to tell you. You know, there's there's just so many examples. For me, really, and, and people are aware of a lot of these. One of the ones that they're really, you know, not aware of, is the president of Paraguay. You know. You know sure, what, Brian?
1: Sure, no. We only got one minute okay. left. We only got one minute left. Uh, so just, just tell people where okay. they can get a hold of you and when they can find you. And maybe you'll email them the story about Paraguay. <laughs> I'll have you back next time. Well, <laughs> they'll buy you a book, man. They'll buy the book, America's Drug War is Devastating uh, Mexico.
0: But how can people okay. get a hold of you? Uh, well, you can, you can see I'm on, uh, you know, multiple social media platforms. My handle is always my name, Brian Sady, B-R-I-A-N-S-A-A-D-Y. Um, yeah, you can check out my website, which is the same. Um same URL there, com, But yeah, I think that if you like this subject, I again, I kind of got a little steered off course there, but there's so much to talk about. There there's 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 so much to know. And I've I've written about this subject extensively, several articles, but I go really into a lot more depth on that subject in my book. Um, the drug war, a trillion dollar con game. And that uh, that's just one aspect of the drug war that I talk about. I try to really break down in every aspect of it. It's not only counterproductive, but it's all based upon one very large elaborate lie.
1: Brian, thank you so much, brother. Okay, uh, as soon as you got another book comes out, give me a call. I'll put you right on the air.
0: Okay, very good.
1: Thank, thank you Brian. so much. I appreciate it. Good night. Okay, they had Brian Sadie, S-A-A-D-Y, com. America's drug war is devastating Mexico. If you like this, check out OppermanReport.com. A lot more content in the member section. You want to be a sponsor? Uh, email me at OppermanReport at gmail.com. And now, a word from our sponsors. Don't forget, the show is brought to you by PSCoco.com. Phoebe Saad is an independent curator with the Cocoa Exchange. The Cocoa Exchange is formerly known as Dove Chocolate Discoveries, and they make the finest silky smooth chocolate because the products start with the best cocoa beans, which are tested for quality and flavor by expert technicians. The Cocoa Exchange offers not just premium chocolates, but anything from sauces and spices to brownie and cake mixes and even coffee and martini mixes. If you wish to treat yourself or someone you love to a sweet and tasty gift, then the Cocoa Exchange is the brand for you. So you go to pscocoa.com, you click on the Shop Now button, you can see all their beautiful chocolates, you can order it right now tonight, It could be in your mailbox in a couple of days, or if you want to get into the chocolate business, you want to be a, a chocolatier just like Phoebe Sod, click the Contact Us button, and you can learn how to get your own website, go into the Cocoa Chocolate Business, and sell chocolate and make a little bit of money there. I want to welcome a newest sponsor, SubashTechnosis.com. Subash Technosis is a search engine optimization and website design company. They're located in India. So you know you're going to save a lot of money and get top quality service. They offer all sorts of business process outsourcing, data entry, banking BPO services, recruitment process outsourcing, software testing, offshoring research network, customer care, press release, content writing, and distribution, and much, much more. Now, you can get a hold of Subash Technosis by email at info at com. Their website is www.subhashtechnosis.com, and their Skype is A-N-U-S-H-A-S-U-B-A-S-H. Remember, all these shows on Awake are brought to you by emailrevealer.com. You can go to emailrevealer.com and get a copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. Well, you also do all kind of different services for you at an online dating service investigation. It's called an online infidelity investigation. And that's where you give us your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend's email address, and we trace it back to their online dating websites. And we return a list of all the dating sites that that email is registered to. We can expand on that investigation and trace it back to porn sites, escort service sites, swinger sites, gambling websites, and even prescription drug websites. If you think your ex-husband or something is addicted to prescription medication, or involved in an extreme online pornography addiction, we can produce a report for you that you can use in court. Adoption investigations. If you want to locate your birth parents or your birth child you gave away for adoption, we can do, do adoption investigations for you. Asset searches for you. Locate bank accounts, hidden assets, hidden properties, hidden income, all different kinds of services in the asset search investigation. Email tracing, if you need to locate or identify somebody from just an email address, we can do an email trace investigation for you in all kinds of digital forensics, computer and cell phone, digital forensics, where we can recover deleted content from an email or a hard drive and produce a report for you that you can use in court. That's emailrevealer.com, or you can contact me at oppermaninvestigations at gmail.com. Archival Revival, the Christian Film Archive, is currently paying for vintage Christian films. They are dedicated to preserving and restoring classic Christian films and media. So if you have original prints, negatives, or other film elements of classic Christian films, or you have audio recording masters for classic Christian record albums, they want to buy them from you. So email archival.revival at gmail.com and they're going to make you an offer. Archival Revival wants to preserve these classic Christian films so that they continue saving people for years. These films have brought people to salvation. They want to continue that. Their staff has decades of experience in handling and preserving of film elements. Utilize the very best climate control film storage facilities around the world. Contact them today at archival.revival at gmail.com. If there's someone you know has these prints, negatives, recording masters, or other materials from vintage Christian films, you can check out their blog, at archivalrevival.blogspot.com. Now, just so you understand, Archival Revival wants to pay you for these films. So you can look in your church attic, in the church basement. If you have a friend who runs a Christian youth ministry, these youth vacation Bible study camp, they have these old films in those big metal containers, 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter. Archival Revival wants to buy them from you. So this is a sponsor that actually wants to give you money. And all you have to do is contact them, tell them what you have. If you're in the UK or Ireland or Africa, uh, these films are all over the world and they're gathering dust and they're going to deteriorate if they don't get into the hands of Archival Revival. So that's archival.revival at gmail.com or the blogspot is archivalrevival.blogspot.com. You can have your ad played here at oppermanreport.com. Every Friday night, 5 p.m. and Saturday night, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And on Friday nights, too, we do a live portion for one hour that I just do a live monologue. The ads are very, very inexpensive, and they're also played in the Opperman Report member section. In the member section, you can find all kinds of exclusive content that you won't find anywhere else. It's as cheap as $6 a month, $20 a quarter, or $75 for a year. If you contact me directly at oppermanreport at gmail.com. I'll set you up with a little special deal there where you get a discount if you PayPal me directly and even get a copy of my book. I want to thank Sean Duff at strawmanmusic.com. He's an excellent musician. And I also want to thank William Ramsey, who helps us produce the show and book guests, who's an excellent author at William Ramsey Investigates on YouTube.